Today in Flex in the City, we talk to Tom Bakery, Chair, Life Search, a career driven by love and anger. All that happening right now in Flex and the City. Hello, everybody. This is Rachel Treese for Flex and the City, and I'm absolutely delighted to be interviewing Tom Begri, who is the chair of Life Search, an organisation that he created. He's the founder, was the founder of of Life Search. He's actually based in the United Kingdom right now, but is South African. And as we are in the middle of the COVID pandemic, poor Tom has been left in the United Kingdom for his Christmas vacation. It's a pleasure to have you with me, although I was looking forward to seeing the cape. (laughs) Well, thank you for your charitable instincts. It's going to be lovely having an English Christmas for a change. Absolutely. So let's hope you have a white one as well, uh, Tom. So listen, you know, you are South African and, and you're living in the United Kingdom. So love to hear a little bit about your journey and how you came to be uh, living in, in the UK and, and a bit about your story and, and life search. Gosh, well, I went to start with the day I was born. But anyway, I'm not South African uh, anymore. I left there when I was 20. And that was in the apartheid era when South Africa was a a, a place where evil uh, predominated, I think you'd have to say. <laughs> so I, I went to school there and um, then had to do two years compulsory military service. And after that, had enough. Unfortunately, found a distant Irish ancestor whose uh, credentials were enough to allow me to get an Irish passport and, and therefore enable me to live mm. in in. The UK, which is uh, where I came, because my sister was here as a nurse. She had got over here in the uh, not the early days, because it's been going on for a long time. The South African diaspora that has seen uh, right. seen the South African middle classes, I suppose you'd have to say, spread all over the world. First thing that happened to me in England was I couldn't get a job for love and money because I didn't have any university mm-hmm. qualifications. So apart from converting, as you can hear, my accent from a South African one to an English one, well, sort of English, because I decided that I wanted to. Uh, the word, integrate properly with my surroundings and not boast about my differences. Uh, yes, the only job I could get was selling insurance. Uh, and it's not strictly true, but nowadays my, uh, my organization, Life Search, sells more life insurance and critical illness and disability insurance than uh, most any other. And we are now the, the largest advisors in, in the UK. And that's, that's where I started as a life insurance salesman uh, back in 1981. So there's my uh, potted history. A life insurance salesman in 81 meant that you became a financial advisor. Investments were more interesting, pensions and things like that. So that that was a business I built up. But I eventually sold to Standard Life in mm. 19, uh, sorry, 2016. So okay. that was 36 years of, of good business there, building that one up. But back in the mid-90s, I, I started Life Search and uh, used all of that uh, uh, financial advice, knowledge that I had gained and capability that I gained to set up what was always meant to be a national brand that uh, didn't sell insurance, but protected families, which I think is a much better way of putting it. Yeah, I, think I think that's enough history from me, don't you, Rachel? Yeah. Uh, so, so tell me about the purpose of, of, of Life Search, because I think you're clearly driven by the purpose. Yes. So, so I didn't really understand anything about these things until 2002, when Life Search was, was four mm. years old, when I re- read a, a Harvard business paper, business school paper that... Uh, explained to me that a business should have a purpose. This is a long, long way for, before Simon Sinek's sort of uh, why stuff that gave everybody the idea. So I was kind of a decade ahead of my time when I said that uh, the purpose would be to love getting more people than anyone ever expected, ever thought possible, forgive me, to protect themselves, their families and their businesses in the ways we know are best for them. In other words, there's an advisory element to that. There is a 
tight focus on protection in in terms of, of life insurance and disability insurance, uh, and then a never-ending scale, just more than anyone ever thought possible. It's quite amusing that even though that was actually formalized in 2007, five years after I started trying to work it out, I still can't quite say it properly. So hmm, never mind. doesn't have the benefit of simplicity, but it is a purpose that begins with the most important words, which are to love. Because frankly, well, why would you ever do a job you didn't love if you could possibly be so lucky? So your purpose should be to fi- find a job you love, as I hope you have, Rachel, and uh, as I certainly still do. I do indeed. And, and so I'm curious, um, what would you say two most important traits that have brought you, Tom, the success that, that, that you have? Well, if you're asking for nice things, I could try those, but part of it must be a bit of the gift of the gab. You know, I, 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 am, I was an insurance salesman. That gave me my start. Mm-hmm. So I had to talk my way into people's confidence, which I managed to do sufficiently well enough to, to grow the business slowly but steadily. Uh, and that was in the city in the 1980s. So, uh, yeah, a very competitive time, a, a time of, uh, um, well, the, the Thatcher years. Uh, in, 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 in all their benefits and uh, and failures, I suppose you could say, the the um, a bit of a gift of the gab, and I think above all a, a desire to. You know where it starts. My upbringing was uh, my, my my parents were pretty devout Christians, albeit both scientists, and um, the preachings of the New Testament. Although I sadly don't have any religion really left pretty much entirely secular, like almost like most of us these days, I suppose. But the teachings of the New Testament always struck me as being an extremely uh, decent guide to a life and how to lead a life. So there is that legacy of not so much Christianity, but of um, doing to others as you would be done by. Indeed, that was Life Search's first motto. So a desire to lead a life which um, fitted those that framework, I think you'd have to say, was, has been the most important part of my success, even if I haven't managed the faith thing. So being a decent human being is what I'm hearing. Trying hard to be that. Trying lots of slip-ups along the way, but uh, not uh, no lack of effort. Yeah. So we, you've mentioned Thatcher, of course, and, and Flexen City is all about inspiring um, leaders and obviously hailing from South Africa. One well, could also always mention Nelson Mandela, but I'm curious, you know, is there any other leader or are there any financial services leaders that, you know, you've really thought, actually, I really, I'm impressed with this, this leadership style. It's really a question one should have an answer to. When I was very young, when I just started and and I was 20, my then immediate leader was a lovely man called Malcolm Hamilton Martin, now long retired. Uh, But Malcolm knew every single word of every Dylan song that Dylan wrote and would quite delight when having a drink in, in giving you an entire Dylan album end to end. So, so that inspired me as a 20-year-old, just the sheer, the man's sheer intellectual capability while having a smoke and a drink back in the 80s, of course. So, uh, but, but no, it, it's not so much individuals that have inspired me. I've always been a reader of, of business books. And so it's, it's those writers, many of whom you, you, you'll know, they're on my shelves over there, I can read them all up, but, but nothing too, ah, dramatically, okay. uh, too, too dramatically unusual. That Harvard, Harvard Business School paper, which I read in 2002, really, um, really did get me thinking strategically as a business leader for more or less the first time, even though I'd effectively been a business leader from uh, 1981. Uh, until then, it had more just been about growing a business organically, sort of step by step, getting a little bigger every year. But by uh, 2002, there were there were hmm, certainly about 100 people or more in the business. They're now about 550, I think. And um, it was time to get strategic. 
So I yeah, the Harvard Business School. There we, there we go. Even though I was never an alumni, alumnus of it. Absolutely. I, I love the, there's an article I've read recently called Leader as Coach, which is one of my favorite Harvard Business Review articles. So, so Life Search, where does that name come from? Did you come up with that name? No. So in, in the... In 1998, when, when the idea was coined and the name was found in 19, early, no, early 98, uh, the, the life insurance market was, and the disability insurance market was really tied up by the banks entirely. And they were charging extortionate premiums, mm. cover that I knew I could get directly from the insurers and, and provide to customers who asked me for it at a, a much lower price. I basically thought that there was a good, good market opportunity in disrupting. It wasn't called that then. But, uh, but also I was filled with a sort of inherent anger, this was the start of the endowment scandal as well, inherent anger at what these huge financial institutions had done to the market that I wanted to be part of, was part of, and and all the customers that they were just simply not serving properly. And I'm trying to be polite there. The, so so LifeSearch was founded in anger to reform its market, to demonstrate that uh, if I remember my first, first marketing idea was to take posters outside the doors of, of Midland Bank Everywhere I could find a poster and stick it up and say, don't buy from them. You know, they are um, ripping you off. Buy from me. That uh, wasn't practical. But uh, that turned into a, a PR campaign designed uh, those days through newspapers to, to get people to understand that the stuff needn't be expensive. But, and if you bought it properly, it was, it was, it was good. Uh, and you didn't need to spend far more money on, on big institutions. You could buy it through a, a small effective middleman, in, in, enabled by a price comparison site that was available to, to advisors at the time. And which sadly I didn't realize in 1998, I should have just made it directly available to consumers and then I would be called money supermarket. But that would, uh, that, that, that insight passed me by by miles. I was focused on, um, focused on really trying to help the customer myself as opposed to let them help themselves. So I love the fact that you're a rebel leader, Tom. That's what I'm hearing and feeling in a really good way. So in your opinion, with with that sort of rebel genre, what would be a game changer that you think would make financial services better today? Nowadays, financial services change really has to be led by the regulator. You can't really do anything unless the regulator lets you. And time after time since the start of regulation, it was worse before, I'm sure, the 80s really were a bit of a wild west scenario in financial services in Britain. Um, you know, I, I, I was part of it or looked on at it. Uh, and so Thatcher, it was who brought in regulation. There was something that needed to be done. But ever since, effectively, regulation, the moment it creates a rule, creates a loophole as well. And we've, we've seen that loophole exploited well, just ridiculously in, 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 well, I think three big occasions. The biggest globally, of course, was the insurance companies' uh, arrangement of loans uh, in, in, the, uh, uh, in the mortgage market uh, in the US because the banks couldn't do that stuff. So they just went in and used their capital to do it. And that was the trigger uh, of the crash of 2008 in my reading of it, global financial crisis, as I should call it. Yeah. Uh, but before that, of course, um, we had the, the PPI scandal again, which was just a perfectly reasonable product suddenly being turned into a monstrous profit generator. And uh, boards, directors, everybody in companies just making a fortune out of it uh, until the regulators said enough. Uh, and and uh, is it 54 billion of fines that have come out? It's an insane number of compensation. And before that, the endowments. So another huge area where a perfectly reasonable product was turned into a profit-generating monster. And that is what people in our market have the capability to do. If you control the money, then you can make the money. And if you can find loopholes in the rules to exploit and they make you more money, 
then you are, uh, well, you're laughing all the way to the bank. So the only real person, team that can change the market is the regulator. And I'm, I'm not sure I'm happy with that. I'm not necessarily a statist by nature, but um, it's up to the regulator to reform our market. Uh, and they're having under Nicol Rathi right now a really good go. The right. consumer duty is something that if they can only give it teeth, uh, might just achieve what various previous efforts like the SMCR and the uh, IDD, <laughs> just drown you in initials for a bit here, uh, and the um, Treating Customers Fairly, TCF, uh, in, 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 all of those were really good attempts to establish principle, principles-based regulation. But principles-based regulation without enforcement is irrelevant. It is just noise. And so much of, of law-making and rule-making applies to those who instinctively want to obey it and follow it. But anyone making rules leaves out a tribe who may not be criminal, just mm. exploit loopholes in financial services. And so mm. the rules create far more work for all of the law-abiding, if you like, uh, and not that I'm accusing anybody of not being law-abiding just because they create financial services products and don't serve customers well. But the, um, the rules leave out those kind of people. And yeah, we, we face that very much in, in the life insurance industry right now, mm-hmm. where the most profitable business models are models that really don't serve customers uh, very well. And um, so the game changer, I think, is in play. It's the consumer duty. And Nicole Rathi has to ensure that it has teeth. Absolutely. Then our market has a chance of regaining consumer trust. So talking about gaining, gaining trust, you know, we, we notice in the work that we do that it's proving more challenging for financial services companies either to attract young people as investors or to attract young people to, to work in those organisations because of the, the history. Do you think the industry is doing enough? What do you think it should be doing to, to attract these, these young, young people? I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that. I, I don't. I think so much of trust mm. is what's the word? Is personal. To say people don't trust an industry. Well, I deal with the customers of Lloyd's Bank uh, when they want protection. The bank sends some of them to to Life Search because we do a specific job that they can't or don't want to do at the bank, and those people really love their bank. The customers have great loyalty to the brand. And if you look at the number of customers, the big clearing banks are losing to all the, uh, uh, what are they called? The, the, the new banks, forgive me, the disruptor banks or the Starlings and the uh, you know, Revoluts and those things. The number is pretty tiny, relevant to the overall scale of the bank. So I think people do trust their bank. I think people do trust, if you speak to the customers of financial advisors, my old world, people do trust us. And if you, if you look at LifeSearch's Trustpilot feed, you'll find glorious uh, displays of trust and confidence there. So it's wrong to say we are not trusted. The totality of what happens in financial services is seen as hugely disappointing, certainly by uh, younger citizens, younger subjects, I suppose you could say. Um, And I don't quite know how you get around that, given our history, given the long history of people doing what I just described earlier, exploiting loopholes to make fortunes far faster than they would otherwise. But in the end, you gain trust on an individual basis rather than a, an industry basis. Mm. I think perhaps the key, key issue for me long term is that the structure of corporations needs people to drive their careers up through 
by shifting corporations, by moving roles, by going, getting ever, ever less focused, if you like, on, on an area they care about. As an entrepreneur, what has been a business founder, what has been really fun for me and valuable for me is that effectively I've had the same focus since 1998, but that was only a version of the focus that I've had since 1980. So there really isn't anyone who's done more protection thinking and work than me. Uh, I couldn't run a bank, couldn't even begin to do that. And I look at the people who do run banks, and I think I'm not sure how you do it either. It's such a huge job. It's such a huge job. But, uh, but you know, if, if, if one's railing against corporate structures, then one really is a, uh, a prophet in the desert shouting at the, uh, shouting at the winds. No one's listening to you there, and probably rightly so. Yeah. And what advice would you give to, you know, a finan- let's say a financial services entrepreneur, you know, it could be somebody in fintech, et cetera, you know, who's really driven by their own purpose, what would be your words of wisdom to those financial services entrepreneurs? Well, I could quote my sister, the uh, nurse, to my 22-year-old self when I was just beginning to make some money by selling insurance, life insurance, and uh, was talking to her. And she suddenly stopped me and she said, Tom, you've been talking to me for 20 minutes about how much you love your business. And all you're talking about is how much money you're going to make. I, I think you really need to talk about what you're doing for your customers and whether that's any good or not. And, and really, if you don't think about that, then you shouldn't talk about your business at all. And when your big sister talks to you like that, you remember it for hmm, 38 years. I think I might be uh, I might have got that right. So uh, that's the first thing I'd say to you is, are you focused on customers or are you focused on making yourself a fortune? And it's okay to dream of the second. But only if you're trying to deliver the first, if you're trying to deliver something that really helps your customers. And sure, if that's a great piece of fintech that makes you a fortune, well, all credit to you. No problem with that at all. But underlying, it needs to be a, a, a focus on the customer. Oh, everybody says that. What, what I actually mean is focus on the very outcome you are personally causing your customer, the consumer, that human being who you are giving advice to or enabling to transact or whatever it is you're doing for them, Mm. should they do that? Is that going to be good for them? And if you're not confident of that or your way of doing it, well, then you just start to make a buck. So stop talking about your purpose, really. Just accept you're out to try and make a buck. So the advice I would give is hmm, don't fall in love with money. Fall in love with the good it can do uh, and then start your purpose with the words to love uh, and that might keep you straight. Oh, and then the, the greatest words of all time in history, of course, to do unto others as you would be done by. But uh, that should be your motto. In financial services, it's so easy to steal money from people. Really, it's not steal to money, just overcharge. Just, just really do, do, just do them a bit of harm and make a fortune on, on, on the way by, by cumulatively doing lots of bits of not so good stuff for people. Not so, not so good it puts you in jail. Just not so good it's not the, you know, what really they should be doing. And uh, it's rife in financial services. Well, I'm glad your sister was such a wonderful executive coach. (laughs) I wasn't an executive. I was a grubby little salesman. (laughs) The grubbiest of salesmen. (laughs) So I've got, I've got my final final question, you know, outside of uh, financial services and doing the job that you do and, and and family and everything, you know, what is it that you, you, you love to do? You know, I'm hearing about the reading. What else do you love to do? Uh, the, the, the reading is, is uh, not my, my uh, primary passion. It's, it's part of part of business development, and uh, uh, always um, always sad really that I never got to get to university uh, because I immigrated here. I couldn't afford to because I didn't have a national insurance number, and therefore I had to get a job. So so that that's kind of a lack. So I, I do a lot of a lot of his, history reading and, and looking around, trying to make myself better educated. 
As for passions, family is what drives me, perhaps from a slightly overzealous love of good wine and the occasional cigar. But uh, no, no, uh, Alison Angus, Patrick and Carolina are, um, are what my life is about. Uh, and then the, the slightly wider family that is the, uh, the 550 souls who, who call themselves searchers quite often anyway, and uh, just trying to ensure that they have uh, wonderful lives, really, or the best lives they can possibly have at Life Search. I think a business leader's job must be to look after their tribe, look after their people as best they can. And if they do that for long enough, then the people get the hang of it and look after their customers a bit the same way. What you do inside an organization dictates almost entirely what, what it does to other people. Wow. Tom, thank you so much for sharing. I'm really touched by what you say about looking after your tribe. And I'm sure your tribe feel your energy and, and vibration and the climate that you create. So thank you so much for being on, on Flex in the City. Tom, it's been a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you, Rachel, very much indeed. You just listened to Flex in the City. Catch us on our next episode.